How y'all doing this morning? Great, great. Well, this is your first time with us. My name is Justice Froman, and I'm the pastor here, and I'm, I'm glad you chose to worship with us today. And uh, we are going to uh, be in Proverbs chapter 3. So grab your Bibles and flip on over to Proverbs chapter 3. It's it, towards the middle of your Bible. And if you need a Bible, we have them in the back. We generally don't put scriptures on the screen because we want you to open your Bibles, read it for yourself, see where it is in your copy of the Word of God. And so if you need a Bible, there's some in the back. You can go grab one and, and use it and enjoy it, okay? Um, but we are journeying through the scriptures together. And, uh, and today we find ourselves in Proverbs chapter 3. And as we like to do, um, we're just going to read through these verses. We're going to be in the first 10 verses of Proverbs 3. We will pray, and then we will unpack it verse by verse. Sound good? Sound good? Are you there? You need more time? Are you ready? We're jumping right in today. No introduction, just straight into it, okay? So Proverbs 3, verse 1 through 10. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for gathering us together today to uh, worship you, to hear from you, God. I thank you for preserving your word for us and the wisdom that is found only in your word. Father, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us by your spirit through your word, that you'd guide my speech the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and edifying to the body. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen, Amen. And so we are in the book of Proverbs. This is going to be the only sermon on the book of Proverbs. And what we see in the book of Proverbs, it's a book written largely by King Solomon, who we studied last week, written to his son for the most part. Now there's a variety of authors, but Solomon is believed to have wrote the, the majority of it. And it's a book of wisdom, of practical wisdom. We see in the book of Proverbs this contrast between the life of the wise versus the life of the fool. And so as you read them, you'll see all these contrasts. The wise do this, the foolish do this. The outcome of the way of the wise versus the outcome of the way of the fool. And if you were paying attention, as we just read that, we see in this passage that um, in nearly every pair of verses, there is a command, something we need to do, and then an outcome if we do that. So there's a command and then an outcome. But what we must be clear about in Proverbs from the start is this, that Proverbs are not promises. Many people misinterpret and misapply the book of Proverbs because they take it to be promises from God, where the book of Proverbs are simply proverbs. They are principles. Um, one commentator said, a proverb is by definition a saying that accurately represents what is usually true, not what is true without exception. For example, the proverb, an apple a day keeps the, the doctor away, teaches that eating fruit regularly will help keep you healthy. It's not a promise that if you eat an apple every day, you'll never get sick and never have to go to the doctor. Proverbs are slices of life that picture what life is usually like. And so you have to understand what he's saying in the book of Proverbs. If you live this way, the, generally this is the outcome of this way of life. It's not a promise that we can say, God, you promised it. You know, like the 
train up a child in the way you should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you're like, I raised my kids in church and they wandered from God. God, you promised that. Well, it's not a promise. It's a proverb. Generally, if you raise up your children in the ways of the Lord, they will not depart from it when they are old. You got it? Say, got it. All right. So the, the title of the sermon today is called Finding Favor. And that comes from verse 4 where he says, uh, if you do this, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And, and this passage, these first 10 verses, are really portraying the benefits of a life lived with God. And so how do we find favor? Uh, the first thing we're going to look at in the text is walk in the ways of God. Walk in the ways of God if you're taking notes. Now verse 1, he says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So he starts by saying, My son, do not forget my teaching. Now teaching here um, is the Hebrew word a Torah. Now, Torah is, uh, means uh, direction, it means instruction, it means the law or teaching. Torah is the, the name for the first five books of the Bible. I think what Solomon is writing to his son is more than don't just, don't forget my rules that we had in our home. He's saying, do not forget the timeless truths that are found in the scriptures. Uh, the, the law, the Torah was given uh, at Moses' day, about 1400 B.C., Solomon's writing here around 1,000 B.C. So he says, he says, hey, these scriptures, this wisdom, this divine writing that has been passed down from generation to generation for 400 years, these are the things you do not need to forget. You need to remember them. He says, but let your heart keep my commandments. I love that. He says, let your heart Keep my commandments. He's looking for more than just robotic obedience. He wants your whole heart. He, he wants you to want to obey. There's this funny scene in a movie, a, a drama, like a romantic comedy, and, uh, and, the, and the wife and the husband, they're arguing, and, and uh, he's saying, what, what are you, what's wrong? You know, I, I do the dishes, I do this. She says, I don't just want you to do the dishes, I want you to want to do the dishes. It's kind of funny, but he says, uh, look, I want you to want to obey. It's more than just externals. Christianity is not just about moralism. It's about a transformation of your entire being. And there's been a popular clip that's gone around from a, a, a popular a Jewish man in the conservative world. And he, he talks about how, you know, some things like pornography are okay, is what he says, because he says in the, in the Jewish tradition, not the, the God doesn't, there's no sins of the heart. There's no sins of the mind or the desire. Sins are only your actions. Wrong. Wrong right here. Um, let your heart keep my commandments. We study God's word not because we need more ethical principles to live by, but because we need a new heart. And uh, he says, to bind them, let steadfast love and faithfulness not forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, how do you write the commandments of God on a muscle? Your heart, how do you do that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, there was these, these four ways that they would, they would write these things. They would internalize and apply the principles, the word, the law of God, the Torah. And this is them. First is to remember. To remember throughout, maybe as you've been reading the plan with us, maybe you've seen over and over, the people of God are called to remember what God has done in the past. We see this in Exodus 13, 3, where he says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. He's saying, hey, remember, you were enslaved and now you're free. Remember that. Remember God did that for you. And, and of course, most of us, none of us really have ever been enslaved 
physically, but we were enslaved to sin, and Christ freed us from that. And he's saying, remember this. Exodus 28 says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And remember the Sabbath day. Every Sabbath, you need to take some time to remember. Now, the Sabbath day was more than just a day off. It was a day to, uh, here's the second thing, to reflect. So you remember, and then you uh, reflect, and they would take the Sabbath, and they would reflect on the reason for the Sabbath. Remember when the command for the Sabbath was given in the Ten Commandments, Moses rooted it in the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And so every time they remember the Sabbath, they are reflecting on the fact that God is the creator of the universe, that all they have is given to them by God. And they would worship on the Sabbath. They would take time to remember and reflect on the word of God. They would get alone with God and just reflect. So it's important to not just remember the things of God, but to reflect on them. We've studied already in this series about meditating on the word of God, to reflect, to chew on it. There's, there's been one idea from my sermon last week that I, that I, that I shared that I've been uh, reflecting on all week. It was one thing that I said last week that I've just been re- reflecting on, on how do I, how do I, how does that change my life? How do I apply that in a greater way this week, moving forward? And it is important for us to not just, to just move on so quickly but to remember and to reflect. This is why we encourage you to do hear journals as, as you're studying the Word, as you're reading the Word, to, to not just simply read it, but take some time to reflect on the things you're reading, to express them in writing, so that then you can go, and here's the fourth, uh, third thing, retell. So you remember, and you reflect, and then you retell. Retell what God has done. See, whenever um, they were brought out of slavery, they spent their time in the wilderness. But then whenever Joshua was bringing them into the promised land, God parted the Jordan River. They miraculously crossed the Jordan River. And then God told them, hey, get one man from every tribe of Egypt, 12 tribes, to come into the riverbed to get a stone, to bring it out, to set up this monument so that you can remember and retell the things that God did. Joshua 4, 6 says that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. He's saying set up this memorial so when your kids ask, you can retell the story of God. And one of the ways that we write these things on our heart is retelling, sharing with someone what you're learning from God. We, uh, we start our staff meetings like this. Our, a lot of our staff, all of our staff really, is part-time. And so we, once a month we get together and, uh, and we have a staff meeting. We start our staff meeting with what is God showing you in the scriptures. And we go around the table and each of us share about what God's speaking to us in the scriptures. We encourage you to do this in your small groups. That's why here journals are important. You write down what God said to you. You're reflecting on it. You're sharing it with others. This is how we internalize the word of God. And the fourth thing is this, repeat. Just repeat that. Repeat the process. We remember, we reflect, we retell, and then we repeat. And God's word um, is meant to be, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. The God's word is meant to be daily bread. It's, we are not designed to live off of what God gave us last week. We need something new today, fresh today, fresh bread today. And so we repeat that process over and over, remembering the things of God, reflecting on the things of God, retelling the things of God, and then we repeat that over and over and over. And he says here in verse um, 3, let your steadfast love and faithfulness not forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them 
on the tablet of your heart. Now this language of bind them and write them, this is um, reminiscent, this would remind them of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 through 9, um, where they're given this uh, prayer that they pray daily. Shema means to hear. And this is what the Shema says. And I want you to see that process, the, uh, the remember, reflect, retell, repeat. That process is right here in the Deuteronomy 6. He says, hear, O Israel, hear, remember, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Reflect on these things. You shall tell them, teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Reflecting on these things all the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So how do we apply this this whole thing? Is that we obey the word. We're not just hearing it. We're not just reflecting on it. We're obeying the word. And see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they, um, these religious leaders, they took this literally. And they would uh, create these uh, phylacteries where they would actually tie little boxes of scriptures to their hands and to their heads. And, uh, and they would repeat these uh, prayers as they literally bound these things to their body but they missed the whole point. He wasn't saying literally bind these things to your body. He's saying internalize them, write them on your heart. And what these Pharisees did is they they literally obeyed this passage, but they missed the whole premise of the passage. They missed the whole point of it, which is to allow these things to shape and change and move your heart. By doing this, remember, retell, reflect, reflect, retell, repeat, you are making these virtues a permanent part of your inward character. It's been said that God may be the father of truth, but repetition is the mother of learning. And this is what we need to do if we're going to write the word of God, write the Torah on our hearts. What's the result of this? He says in verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Writing the the commands of the Lord on your heart brings you peace. This is the word shalom, wholeness. Let me ask you, what other voices in your life bring you peace? You ever watching the news going, man, this brings me so much peace. I'm, I'm, this, is, this is so good for my soul. See, God here is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to me. He's like, you're going to be paying attention to something, and only my teaching will lead you into shalom, into wholeness, into peace. What are you paying attention to? What are you paying attention to? Is it leading you into peace? Verse 4, he says, uh, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Generally, if you're a person who's following the teachings of God and are known for your steadfast love and faithfulness, as it describes here, it causes you to experience favor with God and with people. That whenever you're a person who is known for your steadfast love and faithfulness to others... Generally, it results in favor with people. It's been said that those who are lovingly loyal to God and man are well regarded by both. I don't want to gloss over the fact that Jesus promises that we will be hated, that we will be persecuted, that we will be rejected. That's going to occur. But generally, if you're good to others, It'll do well for you in life. Maybe this is the language that Luke had in mind when he was describing Jesus in Luke 2.52 as growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's what it says about Jesus. And may that be true of us as we seek to walk 
in the ways of God, that we would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The second thing is this, trust in the person of God. Verse 5 and 6 are probably the most well-known Proverbs in the whole book of Proverbs. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord. The trust is this Hebrew word that gives this idea of um, someone who throws oneself on your face, spread eagle in complete compliance. It's the idea of laying yourself down, fully surrendered as a servant, waiting for the master's direction. That's the idea. It's complete reliance. Trusting the Lord with all of yourself. There's a story, this old story of uh, this, this man who was traveling uh, in the winter and he got to this frozen lake. Now he wasn't sure how thick the ice was on the frozen lake, so he begins to cautiously kind of crawl out on the lake on all fours. And so he's crawling out, kind of trembling, really trepidatious, and he's just wondering what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden he hears a lot of commotion. And of course he's, and he looks behind him, and there's this wagon pulled by four horses, and the driver's just going, just runs right across the ice, confident in it, because he's a local, and he knows how thick the ice is. And that's a beautiful picture of how most Christians trust God very timidly. Let me get out there. Let me move a little bit. Let me see, is this going to work? Is this gonna, am I going to fall? And we are... Uh, cautious in putting our full weight on God, trusting God. Whereas then you have some Christians who come along who just totally trust the Lord and they make us all look bad, don't they? They just come along and just run right across the ice. Notice here he says he demands all of our heart. All of it, not just a portion of it. A.W. Tozer uh, nailed it when he said, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out Uh, to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitute. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood up on the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. You're leaning totally on the Lord. It's the idea of putting your full weight on crutches. Have you ever had to use crutches? Are you raising your hand, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, putting your full weight on crutches. If you've ever needed crutches for real, you know you can't really go without them. You put your full weight on them to support you. Now, now, now this is one argument of non-Christians to Christians. Look, your faith is just a crutch. God is just a crutch for you to make you feel good, to give you a false sense of hope, God is just a crutch. And I would say, oh, yeah. Yes, he is. He is a crutch. But here's the thing. Don't pretend that you don't have a crutch. He is a crutch, and he's the best crutch available. But you also have a crutch, and he's showing us right here in the text. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. The word uh, lean here is closely tied to the word trust. And so what he's practically saying here is trust in the Lord. Don't trust in yourself. Lean on the Lord. Don't lean on yourself. This means to be, trusting means to put your oneself wholly at the mercy of others. And leaning is not just reclining against something, but relying on it totally for support. And so you will either lean on God or you will lean on yourself, or you will lean on some form of human wisdom and understanding. What's your crutch? Now, who has more understanding? Me or God? Here's a meme for what it looks like when you try to lean on your own understanding. Me, me uh, when I lean on my own understanding. <laughs> That's like... 
true. Most accurate meme ever. Look, lean on God, not on yourself. How do I know? You can, you can take that down, God. <laughs> How do I know if I've um, wholeheartedly trusted in God? Look, do you allow the Bible to overrule your thinking? Do you allow the Bible to overrule your thinking? What do you do when the Bible contradicts what you want to be true? Yeah, I'll tell you what some people do. They say, well, it didn't really mean that. I know, I know that's what it says, but let me explain why it doesn't mean what it says. And what we do is we try to conform what the Bible says to what I truly believe. But the test for trusting God is, do I allow the Bible to contradict what I believe and change my beliefs to what it says? If you trust in the Lord, you will let the Bible challenge the most, your most cherished thoughts and feelings. Does the Bible ever disagree with you? If it doesn't, it might just be coincidence that you're obeying the, the Bible. If the Bible agrees with your way of life, it might not be that you're obedient to the Scriptures as much as the Scriptures. It's just a coincidence that it, it says what you do. But do I allow, do I ever change because of something the Bible says? See, wisdom, Landon McDonald said this, wisdom does not lean on human understanding. Human understanding leans on wisdom. He's not saying that all wisdom, all the wisdom in the world is found in the Scriptures. We know that there's plenty of other wisdom available outside of the Scriptures. What he's saying is the best wisdom available is in the Scriptures. It's the best, most reliable wisdom, and all other wisdom leans on it, not the other way around. Lean not on your own understanding. He says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. All your ways acknowledge him. This is literally to know him in all your ways. Bringing the knowledge of him into all areas of your life. It's the idea of being in fellowship with God all the time. Being aware of God always. This is, this is not just I have my Christian practices that I do on Sundays or once a day or something. It's, it's I'm incorporating God into every area of my life. I'm acknowledging him in all of my ways. And he will make straight your paths. He will make straight your paths. He will make the course of your life truly successful in God's eyes. He will guide your life. And many times he will redirect your life. Um, I don't know about you, but I find it... Uh, Difficult to get anywhere without GPS. And um, this brought itself up uh, like a week ago. I was going to an appointment to a place that I'd never been before. And so I type it into GPS, and I trust my GPS pretty well, so I go exactly where it tells me to go. And then uh, at the end of it all, I'm face-to-face -face with a road-closed sign, and on the other end is no road. So not only was the GPS like, oh, I didn't realize they closed this road this week. There's no road. Now, I budgeted like five or ten minutes to get there early. Now, I have no idea where I am. And I have no idea where I'm supposed to be. Praise the Lord for competitors in the GPS world. And so I got into a different GPS app and typed it in. And it got me there in time to be on time for my appointment. But... But the reality is we put so much trust and obedience. It says turn left, you turn left. It says turn right, you turn right. It says go here, you go there. Blindly following our GPS. And the sad thing is that most of us trust and obey our GPS on our phone more than we trust and obey the Savior of our souls. We do exactly what it says without question. But when it comes to God, we want to we wrestle a bit. We want to struggle a bit. 
Our problem is that we don't want God to direct our path. We want God to bless the path that we direct. But he says, all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. He's going to guide it. He's going to direct it. He's going to make it straight as opposed to the crooked path of the wicked. The morally crooked path of the wicked and the practically crooked path. I mean, the Bible says a companion of fools suffers harm. Like it's just practically crooked and non-beneficial. But he says, he'll make straight your path. Straight morally, upright morally, but then straight practically, as we see here. Practically, there's benefits to following Jesus. Verse 7, he says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not think that the way you naturally see things is the way they actually spiritually are. We've been working on some different designs and stuff uh, as we roll out uh, kind of a new name and everything. And um, we have colors that we're using uh, for our logo and stuff. And on the computer, they look one way. And I, it's kind of interesting and trying to tweak some things. But then I printed something. And what it came off the printer was uh, looked different in color. That there was some distortion. I'm not, <laughs> I can't discern which one is the distorted one the one I see on my computer screen or the one that came off the printer, but one of them has it's distorted the true color of the image. And we have to understand that from our eyes to our heart to our body to our brain, you naturally distort the things that you see and experience and feel. And obeying the word of God is the orienting thing in the world. The orienting thing, the thing that brings me back to true, is the word of God and the presence of Jesus Christ. See, being wise in your own eyes denotes not merely proud of your own wisdom, but self-sufficient in it, where there is not a feeling of the need to refer things to God. Do I find myself not really consulting God that much? I take care of it myself. That is being wise in your own eyes. And look, he says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, being wise in your own eyes is evil. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Let's express humility by deferring to Christ, deferring to God and his word for our wisdom. Verse 8, he says, the benefits here, it'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, flesh here, healing to your flesh is, the word, is this word um, navel. So it presents, represents the whole outer self. And refreshment to your bones is the inner. So he's like, everything outward and everything inward is going to be healed and refreshed in the Lord. So generally speaking, again, these are Proverbs. Generally speaking, those who are intimately close to the Lord experience spiritual refreshment that has a normal, enormous benefit to their whole being. And it's fascinating to see how modern studies are now showing the a real physical, mental, emotional, spiritual benefits of spending time with God, of reading your Bible and praying, that if you do it um, regularly, that it benefits, you have less stress, less anxiety, less temptations. You have more victory in your life. Like these are just studies, studying people who read their Bible and pray regularly. That it has healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This verse is describing personal invigoration. This person is alive and refreshed. Acts says, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. This is the way of life that brings healing and refreshment to your, to your soul. So how do I know if I'm trusting God with my whole heart? Well, he gives us an illustration. He can use any illustration he wants to illustrate what it looks like to trust God, but he chooses this one. 
He says, give to the kingdom of God. That's the final point here. Give to the kingdom of God. Verse 9. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. The word honor is this idea of weighty, weight, weighty. Are you giving weight in your finances to the Lord? Are you worshiping him with your money? Now, the ESV here says, honor the Lord with your wealth, but the NASB, which is a, a more literal translation, word for word literal, says, honor the Lord from your wealth. So here it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. The NASB says, honor the Lord from your wealth. Is there a difference? It seems, it seems so. Uh, Raymond Ortland said this, I might say, hey, I'm honoring the Lord when I pay my light bill on time and when I take my wife out to dinner and so forth because all my money belongs to God and I'm doing good things with it. I'm not doing bad things and that honors the Lord. That might be honoring the Lord with my wealth. And I could do that without ever giving a dime away. But Proverbs 3.9 is actually saying, honor the Lord from your wealth. That is, he gets a cut from my wealth. I part with some of my money for his sake. I give it away for his sake. This is the idea of giving to the kingdom work of God. And if you have come here for any period of time, you know I don't give giving sermons all the time. We talk about giving when the text presents the idea. And here he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Give to the kingdom of God. This is the test for if you trust God with all your heart. He says, and with the first fruits of your produce. Now this is an agricultural term because that's the culture they lived in. The first fruits were the best of the harvest. And uh, the best of the first fruits of your ground bring to the house of the Lord, Exodus 23 says. So he's talking about bringing your first and bringing your best, not bringing your last and your leftovers. Oftentimes, we treat giving to the Lord like tipping. Like if, if I get to the end of the month and God did a good job at providing for me, I'll, I'll give him a little nod. I'll give him a little tip in the offering. But this is honoring the Lord with your first fruits, which is the first and the best. Let's not give what's left, but what is best. And this idea of first fruits is also the idea is I'm going to give to the Lord before the rest of the harvest comes. That I'm giving to the Lord in faith that he will provide more later on. This is so different than how we think about it. See, we think about if I have more than enough, I might give some to God. But what he's saying is giving for the believer is first in faith that God will take care of you if you trust him with your money. Again, another commentator said this, the tragedy with many people is not that they don't claim to have God in their lives, but that while they claim to have him, they still don't trust him. The most significant telltale symptom of the lack of trust is that they never get around to honoring the Lord with their substance. We've got to make sure that the family and the security, uh, that we have family and security and that we don't add to the security by chopping off a hunk of it and putting it in the offering plate unless we really believe that God is our security. Did you catch that? He's saying we make excuses for why we don't give to God by saying, well, I need to pay my bills. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to provide for. Because you believe you're the source of the security in your home. And whenever you give out of the first and the best, he's saying you're trusting that God is the security for your home. This is the idea of trusting God with our possessions. Now, there's two commands that precede, predate the law. The two commands that predate the law are that of the Sabbath. The idea of the Sabbath was from the very beginning. It didn't come in the law. And the idea of tithing. 
There's not just one, but several examples of giving to the Lord a tenth and the first fruits before the law was ever given. And so some theologians say that that indicates that the Sabbath and tithing um, transcends the law. And so as New Testament, New Covenant believers were no longer under the law, but they would say the Sabbath and tithing transcend it. They're timeless. Now, we don't have time to really get into the details of that, but we have to understand that throughout um, Jewish and Christian history, it seems as though the tithe was some standard for giving. Now, tithing is, does not just mean giving. Anything you give is not a tithe. Tithing literally means 10%. It means 10%. So whenever you say tithe, you're saying 10%. And so giving 10% of your first and your best of all your income, he says, to the Lord. Now, then we have all these debates on whether, you know, you've heard, do I tithe on my gross or do I tithe on the net? Do I tithe before I pay my taxes? Do I tithe after taxes? When do, when do I give a tithe? And... Uh, I heard, I heard one pastor say, um, you know, when someone said, you know, I tithe after I uh, pay my health insurance. He's like, well, you don't want God to bless your health? Like, well, I tithe after I invest in my retirement account. You don't want God to bless your retirement? No. I tithe after I pay my health and uh, my, um, my mortgage and my, uh, and my vehicle payment. You don't want God to bless your home and your family? Like, what are you, what are you doing here? Now, now uh, I actually heard someone tell me that their pastor used to say, when people said, you know, I can't afford to tithe and all that, they would say, well, I pray, I'll pray that God allow your income to match your tithe. Don't pray, don't pray for me, pastor. Pray for me. Like, if you, if you give $50, I pray that God match your income, so that would be you make $500. If you give $100, I pray that God would just match your income so that you'll be obedient in the tithe and, and you'll make $1,000 that month. And I wonder how many of our income would decrease significantly if God answered the prayer, God let their income match their tithe. Now, I would never pray that for you. I don't know whose pastor that was, but I thought it was an interesting thought. I think... Personally, I think God is more concerned with generosity than a specific number or percentage. I don't think the tithe is, is a goal that we should try to hit. I think that maybe it's like the bottom standard for what basic generosity looks like. I think, what, like, what if we far surpassed 10% in our giving? Do you think you're ever going to get to heaven at the end of your life? You're ever going to get to heaven, you're going to be like, I wish I, wouldn't have, wish I wouldn't have given so much to the kingdom of God. I don't think that's ever the case. Uh, there's a story of this one, this guy, um, Joe. Joe joined a church. He got uh, saved, and it began to change his relationship to money. And so he just began to think about money and generosity. His heart just um, totally trusted the Lord. So there was a time where he sold this piece of property. And um, when he sold the property, he gave all of the proceeds to the church. He was, his heart was just so in the church that he's like, I'm going to give it all. Not, not a portion of it, not a tithe off of it. He's like, I'm giving all of the proceeds of this property to the church. I've... Um, I've never known anyone who did that, personally. I've never known anyone who thought that way. I've known, I've known people who sell property and give a portion or a tithe through the, through the church. I've never known anyone who sells stuff and gives it all to the church. That's actually a story out of the book of Acts in the early church. And um, the result of this kind of generosity was that it said there was, there was no needy persons among them. No one had any need. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great 
power the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many who were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, here's Joe, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's pretty radical generosity, I think. I think we have some work to do. This seems like irrational generosity, way more than 10%. It seems like whenever God gets your heart, um, it releases your grip on your stuff. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that this is promoting communism. <laughs> the difference in communism and Christianity is uh, communism says, um, um, I take what you have and give to others. And Christianity says, I take what I have and give to others. It's willful. You know, Second Corinthians says, uh, God doesn't want you to give under compulsion begrudgingly, but willfully, joyfully, cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the results of this is that it meets the needs of the people. Wouldn't it be great if we could say about our community, there's not anyone with any need, because you know what? The church gives so generously that we're able to meet every need we encounter. How do you know where your heart is? Check your bank account. So this, is like, this is the practical test for how I know where my heart is. Check my bank account. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart follows your money. So if you want to know where your heart is, you don't want to know your trust, check your bank account. The idea here of weight, of honor and weightiness and worship of the Lord is the idea of what has the most weight in your budget. When you budget, what has the most weight, the most honor, the most priority in your budget? Is it God? Is it his kingdom? Then there's a result of this. In verse 10, he says, sorry, I've got to get back to Proverbs. It's still in Acts. Verse 10, he says, when Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. The idea here is that generosity to the Lord results in generosity from the Lord. And this verse has been taken and um, manipulated and used by prosperity preachers to preach that the, the proverb is a promise. That if you give of your first, if you give a tithe to their ministry, then God will bless you. And they try to treat God, like he's a cosmic Coke machine that I put in my money and I push a button of what I want God to do and bloop, pops out. I just use God. And that idea is so antithetical to the gospel and the word of God. This is not prosperity gospel. Because whenever you do that, whenever you treat God like an investment that if I pour into him, then he pours out to me. Whenever you do that and you try to, that's using God, not honoring God. That's using God, not, not worshiping God. That's not how we should give. If the prosperity gospel with true, were true, all the sermons you ever hear from prosperity preachers, Jesus could not exemplify it. Because Jesus was the one perfect person who truly trusted God with all of his heart. He was the one who honored God in all that he did. He was perfectly obedient to God, but he did not have material wealth and prosperity. He was poor. He didn't have long life. He had a short life. What he's saying here is not prosperity, preaching, if you sow a seed, God will multiply. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is God's capacity to give far exceeds our capacity to receive. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the Lord, with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38. 
He's like, I'm going to give you so much you can't hold it. It's going to be, you're going to be dropping it everywhere. But we have to also understand that you will be blessed with things that are better than possessions. I'm not saying that he won't bless you materially. That could include that. But there are things that he will bless you with that are better than possessions. Things like joy. Things like peace. Things like seeing your kids be saved. Things like contentment and fulfillment. Whenever you express dependence on God with your money, he pours out a bigger blessing than money can buy. There's actually things that money can't buy, and if you could buy them with money, you'd give all you had to have them. I find it interesting. There's one, I was, I was on Facebook, and, and someone shared a quote by a, by a well-known, popular, wealthy um, entrepreneur, um, leader, I mean, just the super wealthy, influ influential guy. I'm not going to mention his name because I wouldn't recommend you go and follow him or, <laughs> or hear from him, but it's interesting, his perspective on success, and I want you to hear this. Now, notice this is from somebody who doesn't, he's not a Christian, he doesn't believe in the Lord, but um, in his life, he's just found this. He says 7.8 billion people need to change the conversation of what success looks like. It's not to make a billion dollars. It's to wake up in the morning and to be in a good mood. It's time to redefine what we consider successful. And then he, he further commented on that quote and said, I hope you woke up happy today. I hope your chest is filled with love, not anxiety. If not, the quote above is what I am thinking about daily. Success isn't paper or things. It's joy. Cut out the negativity in your life. And often, that's a human or a job or an ambition. Think this morning. Because happiness is worth fighting for. I found it interesting. This guy seems to have had it all. And he says at the end of it all, there's things that are more important than money. So don't ruin your soul in pursuit of material success. I think this is the abundant life that Jesus spoke of when he says, I have come to give life and to give it to the full, to give an abundant life. Now, Proverbs eleven twenty four says, One gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Isn't that fascinating? One gives freely, just open-handed, with their finances, and yet grows richer. But the person who's stingy, close-handed, finds out that with a hand closed, God can't actually pour more into your hands. And he only suffers want. There was, um, I think this is uh, exemplified wonderfully in the life of John Wesley. John Wesley, I'm going to close with this story. John Wesley... Um, was the first great awakening, was one of the first great awakenings preachers. Um, traveled around, traveled the world, preaching the gospel around the time of the first great awakening. And he tells this story of a time when um, he, uh, a servant, came to his door uh, seeking some help because it was a winter day and she only had like a thin um, gown to keep her warm and and he went to give her some money to help her because he was a generous person. So he went to go give her some money. But he, real, he found that he only had a little bit. And he gave it to what he had, but he, re he realized, I didn't have enough to really help her need. And the reason for that is because earlier he had just purchased some really nice paintings to put all over his walls. And so he had spent all his money and didn't have very much whenever a need arose. And he wrote later in his diary, he said this, Will thy master say, Well done, good and faithful steward? Thou hast adorned thy walls with money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O oh, justice, O oh, mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? This experience really rattled him. And in 1731, he 
changed the way he handled his finances. He said, from now on, I'm going to cap my income. And at that time, he capped it at 28 pounds. And so he said, anything I, I receive, I earn over 28 pounds, I will give to the kingdom, give away to the poor. And so the first year he did this, he made 30 pounds. So he kept, he used 28 to pay his expenses, and he gave away two pounds. The second year, God doubled his income. He still lived off of 28 pounds, and he gave 32 pounds away. The third year, he increased even more to 90 pounds, but yet he still lived on 28 pounds and gave the 62 pounds away. The fourth year, his income was increased to 120 pounds. Again, he lived off of the 28 pounds and gave away the 92 pounds to the poor. It said that Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, not the standard of living. There was one year where he had made over 1,400 pounds. And uh, he increased his income a little bit to 30 pounds, but then he gave away nearly all of the 1,400 pounds. He lived radically generous. And uh, Leonard uh, Ravenhill wrote this about him. John Wesley died in uh, 1791, and you know what he left when he died? He left a handful of books, a faded Geneva gown that he preached all over England, six silver spoons someone gave him, six pound notes where he said, give one to each of the poor men that carries me to my grave. And that's all he left. Six pound notes, six silver spoons, a handful of books, a Geneva gown, and oh, wait, there's something else. What is it? The other thing? Oh, I know. There's something else he left. The Methodist church. He could have died as rich and famous as your TV preacher. Sure, he made money and he built orphanages. Sure, he made money but he printed Bibles. Sure, he made money, and he compiled with Charles the Methodist hymn book, and look at his orphanages. And he died worth about $30. He printed Bibles. He printed hymn books. He financed missionaries to go across the earth. That's the way you use your money. You think of the reward. Why in God's name do you think It says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. John Wesley's royalties at one time gave him what would be today an annual income of $160,000 a year. But yet he lived on what would be today around $20,000 a year. Doesn't that sound radical? It does sound radical. But it sounds like Biblical generosity. It sounds almost like what happens whenever our heart trusts the Lord totally. That our heart is so about the kingdom of God that we can't help but invest all that we can in the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 8.14 says, Your abundance at this present time should supply their need. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Perhaps you're not, your giving is not as radical as John Wesley's. I know mine is not. But for me, it has inspired me to be rethinking, to be reflecting on how I view money, how I view generosity. And I hope it does for you. That we would not be content just giving God what's left or the leftovers or a tip. But that we would really wrestle with the reality of what it looks like to give God our first and our best. Have you ever thought that the reason that God raised your standard of living was so that you would raise your standard of giving to his kingdom? It's a beautiful picture of everything I have is from God and to God and for God. So, 
How do we find favor? How do we find favor? Well, we walk in the ways of God, and we trust in the person of God, and we give to the kingdom of God, and we trust God with the results. Father in heaven, I thank you for our time in your word today. I thank you that we can know you um, through your word, that as we study your word and write your word on our heart, that actually it deepens our relationship with the living word. And I pray that we would not leave here and just become externally obedient to the things that you say, but that you would actually transform our heart to want the things that you want, to desire the things that you desire, to trust in you with all, to put all of our life on you, that if you fail us, we fail. That we would step out in faith and trust you with everything, including our finances, God. That you would use this to reveal to us where our heart truly lies. And I pray that we would increase our love for giving to your kingdom, worshiping you through our giving. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us in every different walk of life that we are and different step we are in our relationship with you and help us to apply this by your spirit this week. Father, if there's anyone in here who's never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, I pray that today would be the day that they make that step, that they confess you as Lord and Savior. We bless you, Lord, as the giver of all good things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.